Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are covering The Dead and the Countess by Gertrude Atherton. This story was originally published in 1905. And we are back a week early with this episode because this one was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. This is the same Patreon supporter who commissioned Black Corfu, and uh, we're going to be doing a little bit later this year as well, a Laird Barron story that he commissioned. This is Blackwood's baby. And then also <laughs> this supporter, very generous supporter, commissioned us to do, uh, really, I say us, but I mean me and Valerie to do the John Scalzi novel Red Shirts because, you know, Valerie and I talk a lot about Red Shirts. We talk a lot about Star Trek. Uh, so we just want to say thanks for commissioning us to do this episode and, and all four of these episodes. Yeah, I was really glad to read this story. Uh, it's fantastic, if not oddly philosophical. Uh, again, one of my favorite things about doing this show is having people commission stories that I otherwise wouldn't read or didn't know about. I did not know about Gertrude Atherton. And so this week was a really wonderful journey, um, though a strange one. She has a lot of the hallmarks of the <laughs> character flaws that our weird fiction authors typically had in the early part of the 20th century. But she was a really great writer and uh, really interested to learn about her and read this beautiful story. Yeah, I'm really excited for this story. Gertrude Atherton was a huge deal in the late 19th and early 20th century. She was a bestseller in a, a number of genres. She was something of a, a household name, really. Um, she's also just a beautiful prose stylist. I mean, we're in for some great examples of that in this story, but uh, I didn't otherwise really know how we were going to get her on the show, actually, even though she's really well remembered for a lot of weird fiction stories, some great ghost stories in particular, though this is not really one of them. Uh, and so I'm excited that not only we are getting our first Atherton story, but hey, now we have a collection of Atherton short stories that we can uh, we can mine, that we can go back to, which is really one of the things that's been great about getting commissioned episodes for writers that we don't do or haven't done anyway, is that we end up with the collection of short stories and we can start going back to them. <laughs> uh, they end up in our stable of writers, which has just been wonderful. But uh, I don't know. That's kind of a meta conversation about the process here. Let's go ahead and get into this really awesome story. It's uh, uh, your turn to do the recap, Brandon. So uh, go for it. The story opens with this line. It was an old cemetery and they had been long dead, which makes us wonder about where new people are buried, I suppose, in, in this <laughs> town that surrounds the cemetery. And the new dead are buried on top of a hill close to the Bois de Mor in Finisterre. Still, the old cemetery has been kept up. Its walls aren't crumbling and the tombstones are looking pretty good. And clearly then it has a caretaker. And sometimes we learn uh, about this old cemetery. The old cemetery was nearly beautiful, especially on days when the village celebrated its yearly pardon. So this is a, a place where the town gathers. It's a cemetery connected to the, to the local church. The sort of people that are buried in this cemetery are peasants and priests. The town aristocracy, the, the count and his family, had their own burying place behind the castle. But this cemetery is for those people who wept for their dead fishermen, husbands, and sons, the, the common folk of this town. And the living don't pity the dead in the cemetery as they know how difficult their lives were. And the dead don't envy the living for the same reason. 
This town is a hard place to live, but the dead are now grateful for their peace. But one day, that peace was taken from them. The opening for this story is just spectacular and and just truly gorgeous. I'm really, really tempted to read the the whole thing, this whole page and a half that you've just summarized here. I, I'm so tempted to read it out loud. I, I'm not going to, uh, in part because I know that the supporter who commissioned this episode has already listened to a real voice actor do that. And so uh, there's no pleasure that I can add to that. I'm not going to do a better job than a professional voice actor did. I could, could really only make that worse. But also because I think I'm going to keep this passage or the, really this page and a half here, I'm going to keep this up my sleeve for our year in review show when we are picking favorite passages. I mean, you know, we might get something that beats this out, but for for my money right now, this is the best we've had all year in terms of a beautiful prose here at the start. So what I will say here is just that this description is lush and beautiful and Atherton expertly bounces between describing the place and describing the people and also describing activities, all of that in order to paint a picture of this world here, this this uh, region in Brittany, the, the Finisterre region in Brittany. And really, there's this little fishing village on the coast that's got a castle on a hill and one priest, you know, in a very small church building that world up for us in this just beautiful, gorgeous way. Uh, before we get any farther in the story, I do want to situate us. So as we said, this is Finisterre. This is a region in Brittany. It's the the tip of the, the Northwest Peninsula of France. Uh, Finisterre means end of the earth or something like Land's End, maybe in Latin. And Brittany has been, and and, and a little bit still is, a Celtic region. There are still about 200,000 people who speak Breton there, though they all also speak French. Uh, And so Brittany in this way is similar to to Welsh, or, or maybe I should say Breton is similar to Welsh in this regard. None of this is actually going to feature in this story, but the idea of Brittany as a place where weird pre-Christian woodsy things happen is a real strand in weird fiction. Uh, it's a big part of the later stories in The the King in Yellow. We haven't gotten to those stories yet, but that's a real great example of what I'm talking about here. And I just wanted to call attention to that, really, to situate us in that tradition as well. And, and we should point out that Atherton is a contemporary of Robert W. Chambers. So there is this kind of American fascination with Brittany, and especially in weird fiction that's happening between, say, 1880 and the First World War. This prose is also a really good example of that late 19th century style of, you know, magazine writing or writing for word count, uh, serialization, really, uh, that you saw in like Dickens and Dostoevsky, where there is not a way to understand the characters of the story without understanding the place where they live and how that place is changing. Now, we've kind of gotten away from that in prose in a lot of ways. Kind of people live in their own internal landscapes in a lot of contemporary novels. But in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries, we see that the place that people live impacts their lives. It's not just this kind of other, like, I'm a fully formed internal person, an individual. It's like all of this matters. Place matters. The individuals matter. But people are kind of clustered into these groups through which we can understand the context of exploring their individuality. Though this story really lacks uh, an individual point of view. It's really the story of a, of a place and its people, uh, though we do get some perspective shifts that you do see as common in this period of writing as well. 
we're never even going to learn the name of our protagonist in this in this story, or really the name of just about anybody in this story, at least not anybody alive. Well, it just so happens that this village is very beautiful. And eventually, artists discovered the place and word got out that it was a picturesque place to visit. And soon, crowds and tourists arrived to take over this fishing village to turn it into a vacation spot. And with the crowds came demands for a railway to be built, which was approved by the count. The priest of the old church and erstwhile keeper of the cemetery pleaded with the count and the council that approves this town change, I suppose. He pleaded with them that they put the train line anywhere but in the place where they did put it, which was so near to the cemetery. He was concerned that the sound of the train would raise the dead from their sleep. And he has some kind of off-kilter Catholic beliefs, maybe some non-Orthodox beliefs. So, for instance, rather than believing that the soul immediately enters heaven upon dying, he believed that heaven was ready to receive all its souls at once when the trumpets sound and the dead rise and everyone enters together with the archangels when, when everybody's judged at the same time. And there is some, you know, biblical support for this sort of theological position. The priest then was worried that something else could call the dead out of their sleep, that some artificial trumpet, so to speak, could rouse the dead. And it was his duty to ensure that those dead in his charge were able to rest in peace. Yeah, this priest is a really interesting character. I mean, he, he seems to be more concerned, actually, about ministering to the dead than to the living, though that's maybe a bit of an unfair characterization. We will see him ministering to the, the living. But yeah, this, this priest is really interesting for his heretical views about the afterlife. But I have to say that his view here, this idea that people do not go to heaven, they do not go to the afterlife as soon as they die, is not all that dissimilar to the view on the afterlife that was held by the earliest Christians. The earliest Christians also thought that the the afterlife or, or you know a second life that's going to be eternal, they thought that was something that would happen for everyone all at once as an event and that you were just dead until that happened. The, the current idea that there's like this constant traffic to heaven as soon as individuals die is a development of the, the third or fourth generation of Christians. And even at that point, it was still a minority view. This didn't become the majority understanding for another century or two after that, actually maybe even a little bit later in some uh, some Christian communities as, as well. So it is heretical today, but it is very close to the view that the earliest Christians themselves had, which I find quite interesting. Right. I mean, we see as an example in the New Testament, when Jesus dies and the veil of the temple is torn, that the dead get up and walk around. Uh, it's kind of a, a, re- a resurrection day sort of thing. Uh, and, and we also have uh, the theology of judgment day, which is that like everybody will be judged at, at once and people will be sifted into categories of like wheat and chaff. So this is kind of Jesus's teachings of the afterlife. And uh, then you get that kind of compounded with revelation, uh, the book of Revelation about the judgment and and the end times. And then all of this, of course, gets 
deep into the imagination of Christianity with writers like Dante. Um, so this is not a crazy Christian belief uh, in terms of the Christian community, but it is not the common Christian belief anymore. And he's, you know, he's outside of the Catholics here, even though the priest does say he believes in limbo and, and things like that or purgatory. Um, but yeah, this is, it's interesting that she's taking this, this tack. And I think it has a lot to do with her building up the place that these people are still tied to this place. Um, and that we should care for our dead and, and what they wanted life to be, what, how they wanted life to be better. Um, and this is one way that we honor them. It's, it's a, it's a really kind of beautiful sentiment. I think that the priest carries though it is troubling i think you're right to point out glenn that he does seem to care more for the dead than the living which is not <laughs> the most um uh, which is not maybe living out the letter of christ's teachings though in this case it is going to turn out to be necessary it's going to turn out <laughs> yes, that the dead actually indeed. do need his help here <laughs> right well the typical sounds of the village life going on the sounds of celebrations and mourning don't rouse the dead but what could rouse the dead is the sound of that, quote, hideous intruder from modern civilization. The train goes by this graveyard whistling and screeching twice a day. And for a little while, the priest sprinkled the graves with holy water and thought he was in the clear, that the dead would just go deeper into their sleep as he's blessing their graves and not be woken up by the sound of this train. But this was not the case. One night, the dead woke. On this night, the priest was called to the castle Quasac to attend to the young wife of the count. She's ill and dying and confesses to him that she wished she were on that train so she could get away from her isolation as the count's wife in this lonely village in France. She tells the priest that when she dies, she wants to be buried in the old cemetery in order to hear the train go by twice a day. And she says if they put her on the hill or in the, in the count's family's private burial area by the castle, she will shriek in her coffin every night until she's moved. The priest did what he could for the woman in terms of ministering to her in her state of death or dying. But eventually he left. But eventually he leaves and he wants to go attend to the dead. And on his way to the cemetery, he thinks that if the woman really wanted to hear the train in her death, he just won't sprinkle her grave with holy water. But this is actually a moot point, as the priest discovers, as by the time he returned to his beloved graveyard, he could hear the dead speaking. And they are confused, thinking that the sounds that they heard and have been hearing are the sounds of the final trumpet, but they're not. And the dead chat with one another about what the town was like when they died. And as they died in different times, they get small updates about family members and maybe some resolution to a bit of unfinished business, which is not the reason why they're ghosts here. It's not they have something to resolve. What they really want to know is, why they were awakened early. They wonder if God has lost the battle between good and evil, and that now they're being punished by the evil one for their faithfulness to God. 
The priest tries to calm them down, especially after a baby awakens and no one can comfort it. This laying in their graves, doubting the goodness of God for all eternity seems like it's just too much to bear, especially with the crying of this inconsolable infant. And the priest intervenes here. He commands these people to pray a hundred Hail Marys in order to get through this terrible night. And he leaves them to go pray himself in the church. And in the early morning, he returns to sprinkle the graves with holy water and is distraught to discover that his dead are still awake. And the train continues to rattle by, but the holy water does give them some comfort. This blessing alleviates some of the torment of their being trapped in their coffins and awake. I absolutely love how Gertrude Atherton shows us what life was like for these dead villagers, what you know when they had been alive. Uh, she shows them to us as people who are simultaneously annoyed to have been woken up early and also interested in talking with their spouses and sharing gossip with friends and neighbors and so on. And, and this is actually the only place where we get any character names. We learn the names of the dead, but never learn the names of the living in the story. But there is also a lot of tragedy here. There's the, the dead baby. Maybe you mentioned Brandon. There's also uh, fishermen who have died and, and so on. And what we get here is actually really a beautiful series of vignettes. And it really reminded me of Neil Gaiman's novel, The Graveyard Book, which is basically a mashup of this idea here with The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, that is likely to be a candidate for Brent and I to read when we finish The Sandman in another five years or so. But reading this story here made me want to like jettison The Sandman entirely and just do this book just or just do the graveyard book because this is such a fun idea this idea of these dead people still carrying on and having personalities and having a community with one another uh, not just a relationship to the the living world it's it's really well done george saunders also uses this idea in his only novel lincoln and the bardo which is told entirely through dialogue but then also with interjections from historical documents is, a, is an almost found document device that he's kind of trimmed down. And it's really the, the night that Lincoln goes to visit his son in the graveyard and all of these other spirits are in the graveyard with Lincoln's son. It's a Buddhist idea of the bardo, um, but it's also a really interesting and funny story um, because all these people, it's the same thing. What was life in America? What are these people like? Uh, and it's a really great device. And I think there are now three stories that we're aware of that have used this and really <laughs> succeeded with it. It's not something that that one comes across often in, in the literary world. Well, and I really love it. And this was one of my favorite parts of this story that I absolutely love, this story that's full of parts that I think are absolutely excellent. We're going to talk about this in the discussion, but I do also just want to emphasize here that uh, the metaphysics of the plot element or the the numinous plot element here is that the dead are waiting around to be summoned to the last judgment and that summons is going to be a really loud noise. And it turns out that 
a train is loud enough to to make that summons possible. Uh, we'll take that up in the discussion, but I just wanted to emphasize that here. Yes, uh, it is. It is a crucial part of understanding. I think the metaphysics or philosophy behind this story. Well, the priest is distraught, as we said, and he heads out to the castle to appeal to the count regarding the location of the bodies in relation to the railway. The count is one of the directors of the railroad, and he would have the power to make the change. But when the priest arrives, he realizes that the countess is dead. A bishop had arrived in the middle of the night to perform her last rites, and the priest decides now that he should speak to the bishop. The bishop agrees to hear him, and the priest tells the bishop of what has happened to the dead in the cemetery. But upon hearing this story, the bishop becomes enraged. He calls the priest a lunatic and tells him he's not fit to be a priest anymore. And upon hearing this, the priest flees the bishop and shortly later runs into the count. The count invites the priest into, uh, I guess, a waiting room, but it's near where the dead countess is. And the priest sees the dead countess and recognizes how upset the count is by her death. And, And here's where we get a kind of perspective shift. The count is considering what he could have done differently with his life or with his marriage and believes that it was wrong now in reflection to bring the countess to this isolated castle. He asks the priest to pray for her and to care for her in the cemetery near the train as this was her last request to be laid there. The priest stays with the countess and prays for her and looks out the window to see the women say farewell to their fishermen as they head out to the sea. So we get this kind of scene of like, the priest is with this dead woman. He's also not eaten. He's been praying. Uh, he's in this fasting spiritual state. And when he looks out the window, he sees this really fraught moment, I think, in the lives of of the women of this village as they are saying goodbye to the men who are doing the work that sustains the village and their families. But the women don't know if they'll be coming home. And he tries to... The priest tries to pray without thinking about the dead woman's final countenance. But as I said, he's hungry and he's distracted by this. And he finally decides to look at her face to see if the countess is at peace. But she's not. Her face betrays a look of bitter renunciation. And the priest knows that she will not rest in death. He knows that he's not going to sprinkle holy water on her grave anyway, but maybe the sound of the train, that that monster, that intrusive noise will give some comfort to her troubled soul. He goes next door to the bedroom and loses consciousness. And he's later found and brought back to his home. And it's four days before he's allowed out of bed to continue his duties. And in the intervening time, the countess has already been buried. This was a crazy development here in this the story. I mean, the, the time jump forward. But I have to say, this priest is a really great character. I mean, he wants to care for the dead who've been awakened. And he also desperately wants to prevent the dead countess from joining them, right? He wants to make sure that she gets her eternal rest and isn't woken up until it's time to go to heaven. 
And what I love is that he informs his chain of command about the issue. And then when his superior, which is to say this bishop who really likes sleeping, you know, tells him off, uh, he ends up collapsing in a fit of despair here. And someone's eternal life is at stake, and the, the priest cannot get his superiors to listen to him, so he's totally powerless. And this drives him to a type of madness that just renders him unconscious. And, and you know, passing out, fainting, this is a real trope of weird fiction. Uh, it's it's something that happens in, I don't know, like two-thirds of all Lovecraft stories, right? And uh, and one-third of all other writers' stories. But <laughs> here, it, it's, it's as a result of, you know, facing a kind of Kafkaesque nightmare of dealing with their bureaucracy that won't listen to you, even though you are the subject matter expert. And uh, it was a nice, it was a refreshing variety of that uh, that trope. Yeah, it's really well done. And I also love that Gertrude Atherton has built in the strange beliefs, unorthodox beliefs of the priest, so that when he expresses this, he's really outing himself as a bad priest, as not a carrier of the... Catholic tradition and orthodoxy. And I think that that tension is also at play here, that he's revealing himself to be a heretic on some level, or at least an apostate, and that this concern overrides his need to keep his belief secret. And the fact that he's seeing ghosts or hearing them is also a, a kind of revelation that he's maybe too old and needs to retire and let a younger curate come in and train and take over this uh, parish. Well, the priest has waited for the night after this four days so that he can tend to the graves with his holy water. And he sprinkles water on all the graves but the countesses. And he hears the residents of the graveyard speaking, and they are also losing hope. They believe they're being punished and that priests know nothing and that they cannot escape the sound of the train, which is beginning to resemble the sounds of an orchestra from hell. And the priest can't take it. He's failed in his charge. So he goes to the countess's grave, hoping to hear some positivity, some praise as he has given her her last wish. And at first he hears nothing, but then he begins to hear her screams these horrified cries, sounds of no contentment, of, of, of fear. And he thinks that maybe it's the others in the graveyard that are tormenting her with their hopelessness and despair. And he thinks that if he can get the count to agree to move the body to the burial place behind the castle, the countess will be content, even though it's against her last wishes, and she'll be able to get some rest, which is so impossible here with the sounds, the speech of the other residents. So he runs to the castle, and he gets there, and the count agrees to see him. And the count is in his library, thinking about how bad of a husband he was, and how he was often away in Paris, living like, like a bachelor, and that he didn't spend time with his wife. He hunted and fished, and he brought his wife into isolation so that he could continue to enjoy his life as he pleased. And now he's furious with himself. She had given up so much to be with him, and they were in love at one point, and he had given up basically nothing to be with her. He took her for granted. The priest arrives and the count invites him in and asks him to tell him why he's here. The count is kind of in this shift of personality. He's realizing he needs to care for people. 
The priest tells his story about the waking dead. He wants them all moved up to the top of the hill to get away from the train. The count listens politely, believes he's speaking to a madman. But then the priest tells of the moaning and screaming he hears from the countess's grave. And at hearing this, the count's face turns pale and he gets up quickly and confirms what he heard from the priest. There are real screams coming from inside the countess's coffin. The count rushes out of the room and to the graveyard. And this is the way the story ends. The priest lies high on the hill where no train will ever disturb him. And his old comrades of the violated cemetery are close about him. For the Count and Countess of Quasac, who adore his memory, hastened to give him in death what he most had desired in the last of his life. And with them, all things are well, for a man, too, may be born again and without descending into the grave. The end. Yeah, what an amazing ending. Just a beautiful bit of prose there at the end. But it's also just a very cool way of, of resolving the story, of bringing the story to an end where we don't actually get the climax of the story, at least from the perspective of the, the Count and the, the Countess. And, you know, the Countess is one of the two title characters in this story, right? <laughs> the story is called The Dead and the Countess, and we just don't really get the resolution. And so that's where I want to go first with the discussion discussion is trying to figure out exactly what it is that's actually happened with the countess. What is the countess's story? And really the question is this, was she buried alive? Was she never actually dead, but just was presumed dead mistakenly and was buried alive? Or did she die and was she resurrected? Is it simply that the difference between the countess and all these other dead people is that her body is still fresh and so she can get back out of the grave and just carry on now that she's been woken up by the train? Well, that's an incredible question because it didn't even occur to me that that was an alternative, the resurrection <laughs> question. While I was reading this story, I read it as though she had been buried alive. But thinking about this last line about not only the specificity of, of gender here, for a man to maybe born again, um, when we're thinking about the countess who who's come back to life... Uh, without descending into the grave, this sentence in the context of your question really indicates that the woman was born again by descending into the grave. And this is uh, the idea of resurrection, of being born again, of the Christian idea of uh, the need to encounter Christ in in a specific way uh, and be born again, which is to die to your sins, to carry your burden of the cross and, and to be born anew with the hope of uh, Christ's life and death and resurrection and the, and the blessing of the Holy spirit. But the death language is, is very much a part of that. A part of you must die or all of you must die to be reborn. And so we're contrasting the count's rebirth, which is this regret that he has to encounter that he was a bad man, even though society rewarded him for his lack of care for his spouse, but his wife died and was born again and had descended into the grave, which I think we 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 can really take to mean death. So this changed my reading of the story. I thought she had been uh, 
miscategorized as dead and she was in her coffin for two or three days, like screaming to get out, though I think she probably would have died. Uh, I think you're reading here, right? Or the suggestion of the reading that the train resurrected her, that this being laid at this train, hearing the train go by, her wish to return to life, to travel on the train to Paris, um, that the train did bring her back to life with this, the sound of the trumpet and her body's fresh enough that, yeah, she, she got reborn. I don't know. What was your reading? Well, so I had the the same exact reaction that you did the first time I read this story. I thought, oh yeah, this is this is like Edgar Allan Poe, right? This is a story about being buried alive, and this is really actually something that people in the 19th century were quite obsessed with. There was a real fear of being buried alive in the 19th century. I'm sure that we actually have crazy fears that people a century and a half from now are going to mock us for, but uh, this was something they took very seriously. And and the Count's reaction to the priest reporting to him that he's hearing sounds coming from her coffin and the way that he acts on that immediately as if, you know, this is something that's perfectly within the realm of possibility, right? That he's heard stories before of people being buried alive. That's clear you know, what he thinks has happened to his wife. And so he's running to get her. So that was my sense too, was, oh yeah, she's been buried alive. But I do think that your reading, your close reading of this final passage indicates that she she is actually dead and is numinously reborn by the, the sound of this train and, and given a second shot. And more importantly, this is a happy ending for their romance for the countess and the count because they get a chance to be better partners to each other and and that's the, that's the happy ending here it's a happy ending for the priest as well and the dead because they all get to be buried uh, away from the train and get to have their eternal rest so yeah it's quite a happy ending it it is a happy ending and and it's also a complex ending if we're taking our i don't know new reading here uh reflective reading after thinking about this because it kind of indicates that we're not going to change progress at all. These people are the authors of the progress in this town. The Count, at least, is. And that it works out well for everybody when the story is so critical of uh, this technological progress, the flooding of tourists into a fishing village, um, which is, you know, a kind of a real problem in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I mean, you see it in literature all over this place. These fishing villages become seaside resort towns. And uh, it's a real it's a real issue. I It's a plot element of, a, of an unpublishable or maybe moderately publishable short story I've I've written. Um, but yeah, it, it's that we're not going back. We're not changing progress. There's something embedded here in your comment, and we're going to take this up. This is the next topic I want to talk about is, you know, the encroachment of modernity on uh, rural life here. But there's something embedded in your comment there, which is, hey, this technology, this modern technology, the train, if, if it really did resurrect the countess and give them a second shot at happiness, uh, does this work for everybody? Like if you die, can you just bring your body next to a train and you'll be resurrected? <laughs> right. I mean, that is the question, but I think uh, you have to have a whole host of, of uh, metaphysical underpinnings for that. to Well, true <laughs> metaphysical underpinnings, I'd have to say uh, for that to, to work out. 
Yeah, I mean, I think maybe this might be, well, one, this is certainly a level of of thinking about the metaphysics of this that is not encouraged by the story itself, right? This is not what Gertrude Atherton is thinking about. But if we want to think about it in those terms, this might be something that suggests, no, she was just buried alive because you can't just take recently dead people and put them near a train and they'll be re-ensouled, uh, to use the language of the Buffyverse, and uh, and be able to to you know go about their their business again. But uh, but I don't think the story works on that level. We'll take that up uh, as our third topic, but let's let's focus on the bit about the train here, or, or what the train stands for, which is modernity, right? The modern world and how it is encroaching on, it's interfering in the life of this this village, this uh, this fishing village in uh, a rural area. Uh, certainly, this is something that seems to be changing the the village. We don't get a whole lot of that because all the villagers we meet are actually dead. So we don't get a lot of them complaining about all the tourists coming to town, or we don't see what changes uh, tourist dollars are bringing about in the town, like people being priced out of their own homes and that sort of thing. This, you know, the sorts of things that happen in in tourist towns, uh, you know, you know nowadays, or, or certainly were happening in the nineteenth century too. But if we're thinking about it in those terms. We don't see any of that. But nonetheless, there is still a clear sense that the side of goodness in this story is on the pastoral life and the maintenance of that and the prevention of modernity from from tainting that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, And and that's why the end of the story is, is so complex, because like we're not going back to before. Like we can't move the train. We can move the bodies. We can do right by the dead in some sense. But I also get the sense that this town, as it's introduced to us in the beginning of this story, is full of these grand traditions, uh, like community days, like the pardon, but also these festivals, the traditional or ritual activities of like the wives seeing off their husbands, like all this stuff that I I suspect is going to be eroded by the intrusion of tourists in this town uh, of people, you know, wanting to see these quaint practices and by observing them, by being observers rather than participants, change it, change what is going to come of this town. I mean, even the bodies are moved and, and kind of moving a cemetery is a huge signifier, I think, of radical change. The, the, idea that we need to put a shopping mall somewhere and that's more important than where we go visit our dead is a kind of shifting attitude uh, of like the value of cemeteries of what how we think about our rituals around the dead of how our culture treats the dead and that's basically what's happening in this story they're not you know building a shopping mall obviously but the needs of of commerce overtaking the care of our traditions is certainly something that uh, is being addressed in this story. And I think the the priest is a real crystallization of that because, you know, as we joked about, we really see the priest caring more for the, the dead than for the living here. But really what the priest is caring for is tradition and the, the past, preserving the, the past, that that in some ways is his role here in the community is to be the the anchor, the cultural anchor point for the village uh, in terms of he runs the church and he's the person whose sermons they hear and so on. So there's a spatial nature to the way in which he's an anchor, but there is also a temporal 
aspect to the the way in which he's an anchor, which is that there's this long continuity of the church. And I do think that it's significant that even his views on the afterlife actually predate the church, that they go back to the earliest Christian communities before there is this church edifice and all of this this intellectual uh, understanding of of scripture and squaring that with all the philosophical traditions of the ancient world as well. And so that's maybe another way in which we we see a kind of tension between the pastoral and the modern or the pastoral and the urban here, which is this tension between folk wisdom versus book learning that we get really played out for us in the tension between the you know comedic tension between the priest and the bishop. And what really struck me about that aspect of the story was just thinking back to the M.R. James story we did earlier this year, the the Rose Garden, in which the church should have been fulfilling exactly this role, that the church should have been remembering something really important about the nature of the afterlife of, of, for at least one person who's buried near the church, <laughs> but just didn't, just didn't have those records uh, and hadn't really thought about it and weren't sure what was up. Here we have the exact opposite of that. We have that flipped completely on its on its head here. Yeah, we do. And and I think that this story is full of those sorts of dichotomies that you just mentioned, and they're kind of well worth considering about, you know, how do we as communities or what communities we participate in, like value tradition, to what level are we, to what degree are we willing to eschew that tradition to make room for progress? But everybody's kind of a good guy in this story maybe with the exception of the bishop. People are generally kind and they care about where they live and they care about one another uh, or they want to learn to. Like the incentive is to get better as a person. And and the way they kind of maintain that sense is with this community in the town. And this story might be like an immediate happy ending, uh, but I think long-term it's a warning about kind of the erosion of these things and what it's actually making way for. Like we don't want a universal case where if we put a dead body next to a train, we can bring it back. Uh, It just happens that this is a nice village, right? But like, you know, you don't (laughs) want this happening with like recently dead murderers, you know, and you don't want it happening with the infant who can't understand its situation. And you don't want it happening with like the rotted bodies who, can't escape their graves and are making peace with their despair. Like this story is a really rich story in terms of its presentation of these dichotomies or different desires or different directions that our society is moving in with regards to preserving tradition or embracing progress. Um, But the way it wraps up with like an immediate happy ending I wonder, Glenn, now now I'm thinking if you think it kind of undercuts the message of the the story or the messaging of this story. Yeah, I think it does a, a little bit. And and maybe I'll take a different tack at, at thinking about this this issue that you're pointing to. You know, because we are joking around about, you know, the, the extrapolation of the fact that the train <laughs> will restore people to life if they're recently dead. It will will somehow sort of wake up their soul back in their their body. If that were the story we were getting, right, if this were chapter one of a novel in which this is a new thing that uh, the Count has discovered about the world, and he's going to you know, tell the world about this and it's going to change society that we're just going to, you know, lay recently dead people near loud trains and, and now, you know, no one has to die 
young. I mean, at some point, I think bodies still wear out and perhaps might not be able to be revived, though that would be an interesting question, too. If that were going on, that would be a genuinely horrific story and would be a genuinely weird story. Because the story that we have now, although we are a weird fiction podcast, this is actually more of a wonder fiction story in that something wondrous happens that leads to a happy ending. And in the end, everything is sewed up and all of the interested parties uh, are left in a good place and not a, a bad place. And the numinous thing that's happening is not something that we're meant to find unsettling in the end, but is in fact something that's meant to bring us joy. So it's really wonder fiction, not weird fiction, though Gertrude Atherton writes a ton of weird fiction, so totally within the purview of our of our show. And it's great to get some counterexamples from time to time. And so the fact that Gertrude Atherton does not take the story in the direction of the weirdness here, of, of making this a new discovery that everyone in the world can have, I think that does actually undermine the critique of modernity that is embedded here, at least in the worldview of the priest, because uh, I don't think we would actually want to live in a world. I mean, let's be let's be clear. We're basically outlining the exact plot of Pet Cemetery, right? <laughs> right. It was actually not a book that I have read, though. I've I've seen uh, I, I don't know an, an '80s version of that film. There are probably four other versions of that film, but it's it's Stephen King's Pet Cemetery that we're basically pitching here. And 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 if that were the story we were getting, if trains were doing something like that, then we definitely would see that modernity is terrible. But here it brings out something that's actually a happy ending. And so it does, I think, as you're suggesting, undermine the critique of it that's in, embedded in the, the worldview of the priest. Since, yeah, all it really does end up taking is moving the cemetery and everything is fine for the dead. And hey, along the way, we actually saved somebody's life. Yeah, I certainly think this is the like appropriate view to have towards the tension between uh, the balance <laughs> of tradition versus progress. Uh, and I think that Atherton is treating it with the right amount of complexity that it deserves. But I just wonder if she means the happy ending. I haven't read enough of her fiction to really get her, her views. I know she was kind of a, a suffragette and, and about women's rights. Uh, but she also had some really troubling like racial views from what I read uh, briefly about her. Um, so, I mean, she herself might've been a kind of complex, had a really complex approach to these sorts of questions and maybe even some conflicts within herself about, you know, who progress is for and who tradition is for and all this sort of stuff is really wrapped up in this tale. And it's a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. The The last topic I want to talk about, and this will probably be a really brief conversation, is, is simply the classification of this story. Uh, I don't need to put any label on this story in order for me to enjoy it. I really loved this story, and I will happily read it again. In fact, I will, I will look forward to reading it again in the future. But uh, would you, Brandon, would you classify this story as magical realism? I was just going to say that uh, as you were describing <laughs> the story in terms of how it ends and it's like wonder fiction, I, I was going to say, let's sharpen that up and call it magical realism because I think that's really what it is. Yeah, that was absolutely my sense as well. I, this, this struck me as being a pretty early instance of magical realism. It just had a kind of warm feeling about it where the thing that is numinous in the world is taken for granted. It's not really having any kind of shocking or cataclysmic effect in the world. Even as people, you know, the priest just takes it 
as a given that there's this numinous element to it. And then even as the Count apparently discovers that this is true, it doesn't shatter his world or you know, rock his world in any way. It's something that he simply accepts as being part of the, the world now. And of course, the prose as well, I think, suggests magical realism. Uh, you know, it really does feel like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, or Borges here, that there's a real lyrical quality to this prose and that this prose is really emphasizing all of the ways in which the world is is beautiful and curious and awesome and here for our joy. It was a really refreshing and heartwarming story. I, I agree with that. I mean, that was my sense of reading it as well. I, I was kind of uh, in the mode of of reading through the stories for this week that we were going to cover kind of quickly and and just like not engaging deeply. And with the opening sentence of this story uh, just pulled me right in and just gave me a lot to think about, not just about how I had been like spending my time of like, you know, <laughs> just like skimming sentences or rereading stuff kind of quickly to get... Uh, a, sen- a, a bigger sense of what's going on, but like to really enjoy deeply, you know, complex situations and the beauty of the world. And just, I, uh, you said the word pastoral. This is a pastoral story, though. It's not a shepherd and his sheep in the literal sense. Uh, it is in the, in the, in the kind of Christian sense that we use this word broadly. And, um, I love pastoral and this just gave me a real sense of pleasure and enjoyment in reading and the kind of the happy ending as we've talked about and with engaging with the complexity of the whole situation. This story really, really pulled me out of a kind of, uh, I won't say a lazy stupor, but maybe just a kind of half engagement (laughs) uh, with, with the world. I mean, it was election week when, when this goes out. And so everything kind of felt scattered in my brain. And this, this was a refreshing tale to read. Well, and Gertrude Atherton, and we will read some Gertrude Atherton again. We will we will work our way through this collection over the, the years that this show is on the air. And she has some stories that are genuinely unsettling and terrifying. And perhaps that'll be the next one that we uh, we get on the ballot so we can we can see her working her magic in the uh, on the in the other direction, I guess. But uh, uh, if we're looking ahead and uh, we've reached the end of my discussion outline, I think we're uh, we're ready to leave this one behind. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thank you for listening to this. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please join us on our forums, on the, our Clay Temple website, or on our subreddit. And let us know what you thought of The Dead and the Countess, if you've read it, or our coverage of it as you've engaged with it. I also want to thank our supporter, our Patreon supporter, for commissioning this episode. This was a much needed retreat from the real world <laughs> this week, and I am extremely grateful for the for the timing of this episode uh, as we covered it, but also for for the introduction that that I had to Gertrude Atherton. Right, Patreon supporters are going to get this shortly after the 2020 election. If you're listening to it on the main show on Elder Sign, it's significantly later than that. But I think the uh, the relationship between this story and the real world of of this week is that uh, it's not the train that was intruding in our well being; it was the internet that was intruding in our well being. <laughs> and wow, did I want some priest just to come by and turn my internet off and uh, tell me to go fishing? That was yeah, uh, that's what we all needed. <laughs> it surely was, yeah, for for real. So I will. Uh, 
I will double down on your your thanks to our Patreon supporter for giving us this beautiful story to to tackle this week when we didn't know we were going to need it, though we should have predicted, of course, that it was going to be a noisy, noisy week and we would need some some beautiful distraction from it. Uh, we'd also like to say, of course, that if you would like to commission an episode of your own, we would love to do that for you. As Brandon said at the top of the show, this is one of the things that brings us so much joy is learning what things you love and sharing that with us, giving us a chance to especially to read something that we're unfamiliar with, something that is new to us, sharing that joy with us, and then, of course, also with other listeners. So if you would like to do that, please get in touch. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with The River Sticks Runs Upstream by Dan Simmons. This is a really creepy story. I'm very excited about it. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.